Falcher Agaslanjeva. Welcome and good health. If you're listening to this episode on its release day, a happy Burns night to you. Robert Burns is regarded as the national poet of Scotland and chances are you will have heard one of his poems in your lifetime. Celebration of his life and work became almost a national charismatic cult during the 19th and 20th centuries and his influence has long been strong on Scottish literature. In 2009, he was chosen as the greatest Scot by the Scottish public in a vote run by Scottish television channel STV. Our guest today is Professor Gerard Carruthers, the general editor of the Oxford University Press Collected Works of Robert Burns and the founding director of the Centre for Robert Burns Studies at the University of Glasgow. In this episode, you're going to hear how Burns Night came about We also chat about memorable Burns Night Suppers Gerard has attended, and whether haggis is even necessary for a Burns Night Supper. So whether you're settling down for a Burns Supper tonight, or you've yet to experience it, let's hear from Professor Gerard Carruthers now. Tonight it's Burns Night, so welcome on to the podcast, Gerard Carruthers, who I think you're probably the biggest Burns expert in in the world, perhaps? Some people would say that I couldn't possibly comment. Certainly a lot of my time, Alison, is spent working on Burns. And of course, today, the 25th of January, is a big Burns day. It's a big Burns week. So very busy time for me. Yeah. What was it that got you interested in Burns in the first place? I think like most things for most people in life, I drifted into Burns, certainly when I was four, my parents took me to Burns Cottage in Alloway and it was enjoyable. And I think something stuck, although I may be retrospectively constructing that story, I'm not sure. Basically, I began the proper study of Burns when I was doing a PhD on the Scottish Enlightenment and one chapter was in Burns. I then moved on to work on the Walter Scott Project at Aberdeen, University of Aberdeen, editing Walter Scott. And slowly but surely, I realized that the skills I was developing there in editing could be applied to a new edition of Robert Burns, which I'm now the general editor of for Oxford University Press, because a lot of people have been quite naughty with Burns, pretending that poems he didn't write were by him, etc., etc. So I suppose the wee bit of the, the vigilante in me wanted to tidy up the record and, and make things right. We all start out idealistic, don't we? We do. Yeah. So I guess some people trying to pass off other poets' work as Burns. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a long trail of barbed boys, as I call them, who pretend that stuff is written by Burns, which isn't. And some of that in the 19th century was demonstrated to have actually been written and published when Burns was seven. Now, what happens there is in the 19th century, Burns becomes more collectible, more famous. People want more poems, so they make it up. And then more recently, I've been involved in debunking some poems that really shouldn't be attributed to Burns, but want these to be seen to by, by Burns because they're very atheistical. Burns wasn't an atheist, or because they're very explicitly politically radical. The most extreme example is in the 19th century, There's a whole bunch of poems which I'm collecting which appear via the spiritualist rooms of Yorkshire mediums. So beyond the grave, Burns becomes a really bad poet apparently, but churns out this new poetry 
that is published in the, the, the Yorkshire Spiritual Telegraph. The Freemasons are another group that sometimes quite sincerely, they see poems about masonry in Scots or poems that sound a, light, a bit like Burns. They say, oh, that's by Burns. And there are more poems attributed to Burns about Freemasonry that are not by Burns than the actual number by Burns about Freemasonry that he did actually write. Wow. What would he have made all of, you know, of all this if he were you know, to be alive today? I think he would probably be quite amused. He would maybe be more gobsmacked at a particular area that I've been working in recently, Alison, and that is manuscript forgery. He has at least four forgers, and the most notorious of these, Antique Smith, is sent to jail in the 1890s. He publishes, he fabricates perhaps as many as 1,500 Burns manuscripts, and these are still turning up in sales rooms today, and people have been duped and paid a lot of money for them, only to find that they haven't bought a Robert Burns manuscript, they've bought an Antique Smith manuscript. So there's a whole hinterland, there's a whole difficult afterlife for Robert Burns that I think he would look on with wry amusement. And certainly there's a lot of work to be done still setting the rather polluted record straight. That, yeah, that would be something to, if you thought you'd bought a manuscript, paid a lot of money for it, only to find out that it's, it's a forgery. Gosh. Yeah, so so last year I was flown out by some very nice American people who had paid a large amount of money for 10 Burns poems and I had to eventually break the news to them that these in fact were frauds and they might be worth now about a thousand bucks because Antique Smith, who and these were part of the Antique Smith put Antique Smith in his own right as collectible, but certainly his manuscripts are worth about a twentieth of what an authentic Burns is. Right. And I guess most of us would know Burns for just a handful of his poems. Do you have a favourite yourself? I'm quite often asked this, Alison. I think ultimately my favourite is his welcome to his ill-begotten daughter or his 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 daughter conceived in love. It's got a number of names. This is to, to one of his illegitimate children. And basically in that poem, Burns is saying, I don't care what respectable society says about me. I don't care what the church, what the authorities say about me. This is my daughter. She was conceived in love and I love her. And so you can call me whatever you want. I don't care. All that counts is my daughter. And that kind of defiance, which could be read almost as a bit unpleasant and it's machismo never really becomes machismo. What what actually comes out of that text? And it's one of the few Burns poems that could on occasion make me cry is the tenderness, the love and the love for the daughter, which, you know, is just is just astonishingly beautiful. I guess those times, you know, illegitimacy was well, these days we think nothing of it, of it, you know, parents maybe not being married or, you know, children being born out of wedlock but yeah, back then there was a lot more to it when the church was a lot more involved I think wasn't it? No that's right the 1780s and that particular child eh, was conceived to his mother's servant girl there's a myth about Burns about you know the status he came from and because of that illegitimate child and some others Burns spent some time 
in church being publicly upbraided by the minister because there was a very thin line between legal and ecclesiastical justice in those days. And if you committed the sin, the sin of fornication, if you were seen to be the father or indeed the mother of an illegitimate child, you would be publicly rebuked in church in front of all your neighbours, etc. Really quite humiliating. No surprise that Burns responds with the poem that is passionately tender about his child, but another one that he doesn't publish in his lifetime called The Fornicator. He says, you want me to be a fornicator? That's what I'm going to be. You can see all these buttons being pushed in ways that, well, you can understand that in response to people trying to humiliate you, people telling you that you're immoral. You could just imagine if he were alive today with social media and everything, that maybe this would be a good time for him to be around. Yes, or, or in some ways, Alison, maybe not. <laughs> be wasting all his time in social media when we want him to write poetry. You know, the 230 great poems, well, most of them are great, not all of them. At least half of them are pretty great. And, you know, something like 400 songs that he writes or collects, because he might actually in some ways be a greater songwriter than a poet. I'm allowed to say that because this is going to appear down under rather than in Scotland. I would be lynched here for, for saying that. But yeah, I mean, formidably creative. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I'm on Twitter and, and very often I wish I wasn't. You know, you get sucked in. And social media in general, I'm convinced in all kinds of ways, can be quite, can be quite harmful. Yeah, I watched the Robbie Williams documentary and that was quite something to, to see the people that are famous and who are great songwriters and just the yeah. criticism they get. Yeah. Although I certainly don't regard Robbie Williams as a great songwriter, but us, we maybe shouldn't go there. <laughs> no, we won't go there. So we've started the year already with a Burns song. Like, would it be a poem, a song, Old Lang Syne? It's one that everyone who is, well, at least in Scotland, in my experience, is how you start the new year. Yes, I mean, Auld Lang Syne is one of the great anthems of the world, especially for Huckman A. It's heard at New Year in Times Square in New York, largely because it becomes particularly popular. It had been popular before, but particularly popular from the 1920s. In other words, the age of radio. And the Guy Lombardo Canadian dance bands performed this at hotels in New York. And that's basically why it ends up in Times Square. That's why it ends up in so many American films, whether it be Wee Willie Winky, When Harry Met Sally, It's a Wonderful Life. It becomes part of that multimedia age of TV and radio. It was kind of known throughout the world before that, but it really takes off in a stratospheric way. And, you know, obviously it's sung at the end of Burns Suppers at Burns Gathering. So those two things, the Scots, the Scots tend not to do, or traditionally didn't do Christmas. They were too Calvinist for that. So their Christmas day was Hunkman A. And then Burns Day, Burns Night is a kind of replacement also in some ways for, for Christmas Day. So that's when the big festivity, the big celebration, Scots in Scotland, Scots around the world. And of course, Old Lang Syne, the second most popular song in the world after Happy Birthday, just in terms of performance one of his greatest hits, 
and he's got others like, uh, you know, your, your viewers, your listeners will know a Red Rose, Aphon Kiss, etc. He is the closest thing that we've got in Scotland to Lennon and McCartney. Now, they're a really great songwriters. When, when we sing Old Lang Syne, in my experience, I can always remember doing the, the linking of the arms. Is Does that go back to Burns Night or was that from the 1920s? Well, that essentially is an invention of the Freemasons because the Burns Supper develops during the 19th century. The Freemasons are very proud of Burns. And at Burns Suppers, we have performance of Burns songs, poems, in ways that he would never have recognised. And that linking of arms is basically a kind of thing about brotherhood, fraternity. It's almost part of the kind of symbolic language of the body. So it comes out of Freemasonic tradition and it becomes increasingly popular from about the 1880s, 1890s, through the 20th century, down to the present day. And really it's only in the final chorus that we should do that. Some people sing the song and start and that's seen as wrong. I mean, ultimately, I don't care about it, but that's the kind of tradition that you do that at the end. And it's at the end, you're about to all part, go your separate ways. So let's hang on to one another for another couple of minutes. So it's a song of sociability, of fellowship. And in that way, I think it is quite nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is quite a nice touch. But yeah, again, not exactly something that Burns came up with, but as you're saying, like so many other things that people have taken on themselves and embellished over the years. So I guess give it a little bit more gravitas. Yes, and it's good fun. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're right in a sense of it, gravitas. Of course, by the time people come to Link Arms, most of them have had quite a lot to drink. And so I'm not sure that gravitas is entirely <laughs> the word I would always reach for there, but I know what you mean. Mm. Do you know when the first recorded Burns Supper was held? I mean, I'm imagining it wasn't in his lifetime. (laughs) The first Burns Supper that we would recognize as such is in 1801. So in other words, five years after his death, when 12 of his friends, most of them have known him personally in life, gather together in air and they celebrate Burns with a dinner. But it's not until 1803 that it happens on the 25th of January because the first couple of burn suckers, these guys have been missed, even, even men that knew him have been misled by the first biography of Burns, which comes out in 1800, written by a man called James Curry. And he says that Burns was born on the 29th of January. So it takes a few years for them to get the date right. So the first burn supper on the 25th of January is in 1803, again, in the Ayrshire. And has it always been haggis, snakes and tatties? Yes and no, because haggis certainly features in the first Burn Supper, but to begin with, sheep's heads is as much a feature. And through the 19th century, very often, people will serve beef, they'll serve fish, they'll serve other things. Haggis is actually quite a difficult thing to produce for a lot of people because if you're talking about one sheep's stomach with the contents of chopped lungs and liver and all that kind of stuff and oatmeal, it's quite fussy to prepare. So when Burns writes his poem to Haggis and he says, this is a good Scottish food, he's not wrong and there's a tradition of that, 
But to some extent, although the serious point is you only need simple nutrients to keep you alive, it's a bit of a joke because he knows that haggis is a first to prepare. And also, the kind of joke is I'm going to make something really quite obscure and kind of say that this is the Scottish did. In the same way that, you know, Scotch whiskey wasn't really the Scotland's national drink until after Burns writes his poem, Scotch Drink. Burns keeps inventing stuff, and then reality follows in the wake of his fiction. So yes, there was haggis from the start, but no one addressed the haggis, using Burns' words, till much later on. Much of the Burns supper really hasn't developed from 1859, in other words, the first centenary, 100 years after his birth, is when we get a lot of stuff going on that begins to look in the way you and I might recognise it as the modern burnt supper. So we could, in theory, not have haggis for a, a burnt supper. We could just have something simple. Yes, as long as you don't address the haggis or you could address the vegetarian haggis, and guess what? <laughs> vegetarian haggis actually can taste as good as the meat haggis because the secret is all in the oatmeal and the spices. And I, I have to say, as, as a committed carnivore, I didn't want to like vegetarian haggis. But the first couple of times I had it, I was like, this is surprisingly good. So it's not essential in any way. And one of the problems, if you like, with Burns is that Burns himself as a very creative, very experimental artist in song and poetry, Burns didn't really believe much was set in stone. And then the traditionalists come along and they want things to be too traditional. So I'll give you an example of that, where there's a rather silly battle that goes on between those who prefer the folk versions of Burns and those who prefer the classical or drawing room settings of Burns. The reality is that the kind of classical stuff is more what Burns would have recognised. The folk stuff, to a large extent, is refracted through the post-rock and roll, post-jazz era of the 1960s. But nonetheless, that traditional folk stuff is great, and so is the classical stuff. Burns wasn't an essentialist. He didn't believe that things could only be done one way. And the problem that we get with the, the most stupid kind of traditionalist is to insist there's only one way of doing things. Burns never believed that. So really then we can just take Burns and we can put it to any kind of music, perform it in any way we like, and we're still reflecting the real Robert Burns. I, I, I think so, Alison. In recent years, there's been a lot of alternative Burns suppers and various communities like the Chinese community in Vancouver have had great fun making their own kind of dim sum, I guess. We've got some Asian communities over here that um, have haggis pakora, and all of that's great and very tasty. And the basic thing about Burns, which is kind of universal, which is a kind of essential, is that people recognise a lot of what he's talking about, the love, the sympathy, the friendship. And so that's the thing that translates. And so, no, it doesn't really matter how you do it. But it's a good idea to remember Robert Burns somewhere in there because he is a great songwriter and a pretty great poet. So if it's not Ode to a Haggis, it could be any of his other poems that you 
eat that you decide to recite on, on Burns Night. Yes, and these poems have shifted around over the decades. I mean, these days you'll, you'll you know, a bum supper, you're most likely to hear Tamar Shanter recited, great long shaggy ghost story with a daft ending. You'll hear Old Lang Syne, you'll hear To a Haggis, and you might hear Poe Willie's prayer about religious hypocrisy. And there's a whole bunch of other poems that you might or might not hear. Going to as many burnt suppers as I have for basically three decades, the fresher it is, the more unusual the choices, the happier I am. Give me something different for my poetic palette. Where have you spent Burns Night over those three decades? Have you been all over the world? Yes. So, Tina, I think it was, I gave the immortal memory at Toronto Rugby Club in Canada. I've been in Burn Suppers in Russia, in St. Petersburg, where I've spoken. I've been in Burn Suppers in China with Chinese wine. And that was very good. So, yes, all over the world, but, but more often than not in Scotland or even, dare I say it, occasionally in England. And that's been great fun as well. I will, I'll be asking you a bit later on about your ideal 24 hours in Scotland, but what would be your ideal burn supper, like your location and the, the company? I think the, the, what my preference would be, Alison, would be a very small, intimate gathering, just with a bunch of maybe a dozen friends, a bit like the first burn supper, a dozen of Burns' friends, not that I'm comparing myself to Burns, but a dozen friends who each do their own thing, but the instruction is they've to refer to Burns or something to do with Burns in some way, and that would be at my home or the home of one of my friends, and that would do me. I've done burn suppers where I've spoken to six, 700 people. I've done burn suppers where I've spoken to 20 or 30 people. I've done Jewish burn suppers, Catholic burn suppers, ethnic burn suppers, the Bengali community. All of them are nice in their own way, but Partly because I've done so many, it wouldn't bother me if I never went to another one again. There's the honest, brutal truth. Well, I suppose there's probably only so much haggis you can eat. Although I do enjoy haggis. <laughs> I, never, I never get tired with, with, with haggis. So is it just the ceremony and just the, you know, the expectation on the night? It's just, for me now, in some ways, it's the repetition of elements that I've seen over and over again. Mm. It's not to say that I don't derive enjoyment. I do basically every burn supper, but I've just done that uh, more than enough, I think is the simple answer. Yeah. Oh, that's fair enough. And as you said before, it's about keeping it fresh. And if you've been to so many around the world as well, where they do things slightly differently, that would, that would be quite enjoyable. Yeah, and one of the things I get sick of most is the sound of my own voice. <laughs> this year, it's an immortal memory in Stranraer in the southwest. Very nice. And in February, one of my late, I mean, I've done them as late as March, but I'm doing one in February this year, and that will be in Glasgow for the Sandy Club Burns Club, who very kindly made me their patron. So there's still stuff that I'm doing and enjoying, and if I'm honest, I do enjoy a very nice drink on that particular occasion more than many other nights. I feel a wee bit of a wee bit of payback is me getting a good swally, as we say in Scotland. Do you have a particular favourite whiskey that you like to enjoy? 
There are too many of them, but my, my favourite probably is Balvenie. Balvenie whiskey is, is wonderful, but there are there are many good ones like Highland Park, Annandale, etc. There's only about two whiskies I've discovered that I don't like. And I'm not a snob about it because very often a blended whiskey can be as good as a malt. Like, I really do enjoy whiskey. It's one place where I'm a true Scot. A straight whiskey, whiskey with nothing in it, and that fire water hitting the belly, laying on the lips, it's, it can be wonderful. Mm. Do you have to have whiskey sauce with haggis? Because I prefer not to. No, you don't have to do anything. And the last few times I've had haggis, it certainly hasn't been with any, any sauce at all. The important thing, I think, is to have it with neeps and, and tatties, to have it with turnip and potato. And when the turnip is cooked well, it's beautiful. The worst thing is lumpy turnip. And you do get that occasionally because it ain't always easy catering for a whole haul of people. You know, not, not, not easy at all. No, when you mentioned the burn suppers of like 500 people, I'm just imagining the size of the haggis and how many of them there would have to be. Yeah, well, I think what they usually do there, Alistair, of course, as you might guess, is They'll bring in one big haggis, they'll have that address, they'll have that card. But of course, there are lots of other haggises or haggai back in the kitchen waiting to be carved up for, 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 the, for so many people, for hundreds of folk. Yeah. I, I love um, how the Scots tend to, they've got this haggis and they've given it kind of like a life form just to tease tourists. You see, you see all kinds of like cartoon images of the haggis and, and it is a bit of tomfoolery, but it is quite fun. Yes, it's a, it's a daft joke. Uh, you get more chance of seeing the Loch Ness Monster than you have of seeing a haggis among the heather, but, but so it goes. And it's quite touching sometimes. You know, we kiddies, you'll show them that and they believe that haggis actually is a, is a creature. That's kind of nice to let them, let them enjoy that fantasy. Yeah, but then discover, oh, it's probably better hearing that and thinking that's real than discovering what is actually in the contents of a haggis. <laughs> yes. The haggis is wonderfully tasty and a lot of people can't be up to eat it because if they remotely know what's in there, they don't like that sheep's stomach, etc. The the innards. But actually it's a very healthy dish. Various people historically, including the French, the Chinese, have a version of it. And we're all too squeamish these days. And it's the old Native American thing of actually working with the planet and not wasting anything. And haggis really is super tasty. And a lot of people, I think, have never put it in their mouth because they're just put off by the thought of it. And if they were to be a wee bit braver, they would find some wonderful tastes in mm. there. On my last trip to, to Scotland, you mentioned haggis pakora. I actually had some haggis pakora in a, a pub in the grass market of Edinburgh. And... I had haggis and cheese panini, and I had a haggis pizza. So It's the most versatile of cuisine. Yeah, but I do think it is best with the neeps and the tatties. And I'm a bit, maybe a, a little bit ashamed to say, but I do like a bit of tomato sauce with it. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I don't like tomato sauce at all. So, you know, so that is, I've got no prejudice against it, but on the haggis, I just got a prejudice against it being on anything, but so it goes. <laughs> Fair enough. 
And I've mentioned just before, Gerard, about having a dream 24 hours in Scotland. So if you could spend 24 hours anywhere in Scotland, where would you choose to spend those? Well, that's the kind of question that makes me think that my life, like other people, my taste go in phases, Alison. Right now, I'm kind of in love with the island of Butte. And on the island of Butte is the town of Rossi. It's a very charming town with bakeries and great sea views and great fish and chip shops. I'm certainly have fish and chips. And just up the road from there is Mount Stewart, wonderful stately home belonging to the Butte family where they've got a great Burns collection and they've been very nice to me. So a bit of time in Rossi, driving up the sea roads up the east of the islands to Mount Stewart, spending time in that house looking at the burn stuff, having had my fish and chips, maybe a couple of drams before going to bed, on the island of Butte, that would be a lovely 24 hours. I could have quite an idyllic time. Mm. I've heard so much about Mount Stewart's, and I understand, was it the home of the very first heated swimming pool in the UK? Yes, they, they had all kinds of innovations because they were fabulously wealthy. And they had things like gas lighting, one of the first to have that, and heated baths and under floor heating, all kinds of innovation. So full of ancient antiquarian material, but also very up to the minute in terms of new technology. So quite a fascinating place. And it's kind of, it's enchanting, but part of its enchantment, Alison, is if you've never been to it before, people who go to it suddenly go, how can you have a huge place like this? Because it's basically a huge museum that you would find a city centre sitting on, on a hill on an island. It's a bit incongruous, even in its charm. So I guess that's also why I choose it. I'm getting the museum and the big city experience on an island as well. It's that variety. Mm. And you mentioned fish and chips. Do you have a particular favourite fish? Well, again, I'm allowed to say this because I'm speaking to you from thousands and thousands of miles away. I rather like battered cods and, and chips. Most Scots like haddock, prefer haddock. And I do like a bit of haddock myself, but that you can't beat cod and chips, cook, whisper it on the south coast of England. Some of the chip shops there are among the very best. If you're having your fish and chips on, on Butte, what do you have with it? Do you have like tartar sauce or salt and vinegar? I would have salt and vinegar. I might have a bit of tartar sauce. I don't mind that. And I would certainly have garden peas. I don't like mushy peas. <laughs> so that would be the classic thing. Cup of tea, fish and chips, salt and vinegar, some garden peas, maybe some tartar sauce. Very optional. I would probably end up rounding it all off with a can of iron brew as well. Scotland's other national drink. You can't beat a can of iron brew. It has to be the, the original, not the iron brew extra. Yes, the full, the full, fully sweetened ones <laughs> have your fillings crying out for mercy. The full fat iron brew is the way you want to go, Alison. Did you have any of the variety, variations of iron brew that they put out in the last few months? Was it ice cream and it was a tropical one? I, tried, I, I didn't have the tropical one. I tried something like ice cream soda. I'm, I'm a bit hazy, but I think the one you mentioned I did, and it was okay. I mean, the brutal truth about all these products is basically they do some one thing very well, and the variations never really enhance it. 
But Iron Brew is, is very good. I need to be careful what I say because the Centre for Robert Burns Studies that I founded at the University of Glasgow in 2007, one company in particular has been very generous to us by giving us funds to help us do our research, and that is Coca-Cola. So I really shouldn't be talking about Iron Brew at all. The research that Coca-Cola and the Shaw family helped um, establish for us resulted in an interactive burn supper map that you can see through our research centre website. And that's got burn suppers all over the world, including in Australia and New Zealand. It's even got a swingers club in Blackpool, literally. You go onto the map, you can find all this. One in a tarp. Um, so a fascinating bit of work, largely done for us by our researcher, Dr. Paul Mulgrati. But anyone who's interested in the Burn Supper, who's following your podcast, might want to go on and look at our interactive Burn Supper map. And it's very, very entertaining, genuinely. Well, we'll have links to all those in the show notes so people can find out more. But it sounds like there's still so much interest in Robert Burns. All these decades after he died... Well, was it 200 years? And yet, yeah, still more people are wanting to learn, would you say, with your, your Centre for Robert Burns Studies. So I think we can be quite confident that going forwards, there are going to be plenty more Burns Suppers to come. Many more Burns Suppers, a lot more written and spoken about Burns. We've also got an online free three-week course, a MOOC, a massive open online course. That has had something like 30,000 learners take it already. So that just shows you the demand and the interest remains really very, very steady. Can we still learn anything new about him? There's always more to be learned about Burns. So for a small example, in a country house recently, I found a cancelled manuscript in Robert Burns' hand, and it's one of his most famous Jacobite songs. Ye Jacobites by name. And I looked at this and I thought, hang on a minute. And it wasn't Ye Jacobites by name to begin with, although it gets crossed out. It was Ye Black Nebs by name, Ye Black Noses. And I happened to know that Black Nose was a term of abuse for radical reformers following the French Revolution in Britain. So in other words, Burns begins writing a Jacobin song, a radical reform song, and then he repurposes it as a Jacobite song. That's something that I'm just unveiling to the world this month, and that will get a bit of media attention. So there's always more that you can discover, always more to be found out about Burns. Yeah, well, look forward to seeing what else we can, can be learning over the next few years. Thank you so much for your time, Gerard. It's been wonderful talking with you from the other side of the world. Looking forward to our, our burn suppers. Thank you very much, Alison. It's been a pleasure and thank you, thank you for, for having me on. Thanks again, Gerard, for this conversation. It was certainly a learning experience for me and I'm going to be less fickle now about whether a burn supper includes the works or is just a simple meal. It was also interesting hearing about Mount Stuart on the Isle of Bute, which is where Gerard is speaking on January 26th, delving into the history of fraudulent Burns relics. Links to the Centre for Robert Burns Studies and other Robert Burns sites are in the show notes. Now, you don't have to carry the name to be a clan member and certainly not to be a member of the Scottish at Heart clan, which you can join over on Patreon. So join me next week for another conversation about being Scottish at heart.
You've just listened to Scottish at Heart. For more Caledonian connections, join our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. You'll get bonus content plus a members-only space to strengthen your Scottish ties. You can also make our day by leaving a five-star review. See you next time.